Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Aloha, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange Rewind, where we revisit an episode of the paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. But have no fear, I am still your host, journalist, author, researcher of weird things, Aaron Sagers, and I still appear on Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and the Max streaming service, as well as 28 Days Haunted on Netflix. So I wanted to revisit this conversation that we had last year because we were talking about Halloween, its origins, importance, legends, and evolution. And the conversation included two academics and researchers and and people that I just happen to have enormous admiration for, Dr. Margie Kerr and Dr. Lynn S. McNeil. You have heard them both separately and together on this show a handful of times. And why? Because they are the go-to. They are people that I just love speaking to. I have fun speaking with when we're talking about the cultural and sociological elements of why things scare us and the stories we tell. Now, just as a refresher, Margie Kerr is a sociologist and author. She earned her PhD in 2009 from the University of Pittsburgh and currently teaches and conducts research on fear, specifically how and why people engage in scary experiences like haunted attractions, horror movies, and paranormal investigations. She also works as a consultant for haunted attractions and museums and is the author of Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear, which was named as a must-read by the Washington Post. Her work has likewise been featured in the New York Times, Parade, Atlantic Monthly, and NPR's Science Friday, among other places. My other guest, Dr. Lynn S. McNeil, a folklorist and director of graduate studies in the English department at Utah State University, and her research interests include legend, belief, fandom, and digital cultures, and she is the author of the popular textbook Folklore Rules and the co-editor of Slender Man is Coming, Creepypasta, and Contemporary Legends on the Internet, and Legend Tripping, a Contemporary Legend Casebook. She also appears as a castmate and cohort with me on Paranormal Caught on Camera. So check it out. This is, uh, I think, a really great conversation with the two of them about Sahwin and All Hallows Eve. So let's get to it. This Talking Strange Rewind. How is your spooky season treating you so far uh lynn you mentioned your spooky season involves a lot of uh per usual academics yeah yeah absolutely so it's made extra spooky by lots of promotion and tenure committee meetings which is 
you know, I can't even make it sound that exciting. It's more, it's more boring and exhausting than spooky, but the horror, the horror, the horror, exactly. The horror of unending tedium. Um, I've been decorating my house and I went with a dead baby theme this year. So, you know, I have that as the trade-off. Right. Okay. I mean, I want to see pictures. I think you need to post those on social media. But all right. So Lynn's coming in hot with uh, academics and a dead baby motif for her. The usual pairing, you know. Yes. <laughs> uh, no pressure, Margie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what, do you, yeah really. what do you got going on? Um, mine is off to a really good start, too. I just got approval from the University of Pittsburgh to collect more data at a new site this season. So I'm very excited to get back out there and start talking to people and uh, seeing what what they're feeling this year. And this year, the big um, exciting thing is that we can collect follow-up data. So now we Mm -hmm. can follow up with people in a few days and a few weeks to see how the experience may be staying with them and impacting their mood. And so I'm very excited. I just got that news yesterday, so I'm still kind oh. of uh, riding a high from that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big deal. Getting getting approval to do something is is always a, a a big deal and a big win. So, well, yeah, and congratulations. Just to to kind of provide some context for some folks that may not yeah. have heard from you before, <laughs> talk a little bit about the data you previously collected, which also was represented. Uh, you discussed in the book Scream as well. Yeah, so my colleague Greg Siegel and I have been collecting data from people who want to do scary activities. For example, go to a haunted house or um, a paranormal investigation, anything that involves the kind of, you know, threat and fear and intense emotions. And we started collecting data in 2014. um, And the protocol that we have uh, with the University of Pittsburgh, which is required to, you know, collect data ethically to make sure that everything is running as it should, um, that we're protecting everyone's privacy. Um, We have it written so that we can continue to add different sites and different events to the protocol. Um, And it's a a big deal to be able to get the approval to do follow-up data now with participants because it means that we're collecting some personal identifiers. Uh, And previously, we were only able to really get data in the moment, um, which is great because we do want to know what people are experiencing in the moment before and after they do something scary. Uh, But we really have for a while wanted to know how the experience continues to impact them along the way. So we ask questions like, you know, what are your expectations? Um, How are you feeling? A A lot of opportunities to ask them how they're feeling. Um, and then what they expect to get out of the experience and um, what their, you know, just their motivations for, for being there that night might be. Um, so that's a little bit, yeah, sorry, I just jumped right in there. I am uh, just excited to be able to get follow-up data. So. Oh, that's, it's excellent. And that's exactly what I was asking about. Well, I yeah. will circle back to some of the science and the social science, but I want to go back in time, maybe 2,500 years, maybe as far back as 5,000 years. I don't know. Lynn, give us, give us a little bit of a rundown of the origins of what we came to know as Halloween. Yeah, this is, this is a, a great story because it's one where we actually do have some information from sort of the murky mists of ancient times where a lot of the times we 
we're left with conjecture or speculation or maybe even some solid theatrical invention, we have some pretty good details on where Halloween came to us from. And it came to us from ancient Ireland and the festival known as Samhain, which was a celebration of the harvest, of death, of dying. Um, there's some speculation now about what exact time of the year that was for the ancient Celtic people. It was believed for a really long time that this was the Celtic New Year celebration, that we were seeing the start of the year. Um, Julius Caesar, when he wrote about their culture, said they begin time, whether it's days, weeks, or years, with the darkness. So days begin at night instead of in the morning. And this was sort of interpreted to mean the year would begin at the dark time of the year. So starting now where days are getting shorter, we're moving into winter and through autumn, the 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 name at the time for the months we're in, um, the ancient Celts were really good at calendars, which is fun. Um, they called this month seed fall, which I just think is fantastic and we should bring it back. But they had this festival called Samhain, whether it was the new year or not, that was this acknowledgement of the souls that had departed in the previous year. And it was this opportunity for people to think about, engage with, commemorate, maybe even interact with those spirits. And when Christianity came to Ireland, as it came to so many places, there was this effort to sort of like stick it all together. You know, the, the folks doing a lot of the converting at that time were, they knew what they were doing. You know, they were good with PR and they rarely said, let's eliminate this festival or this belief that you already have. What they said was, let's incorporate it. So we actually see a lot of pre-Christian traditions and beliefs and, and even deities being incorporated into that, that early Christianity in the form of saints, in the form of different local rituals, holy places, wells and springs and things like that. And so we get this celebration in the Catholic Church known as All Saints Day. All Souls Day was added as the day after shortly um, because All Saints Day didn't quite cut it. Samhain had been about all of us, <laughs> everyday people and the people who are lost. And All Saints Day is sort of about, you know, the, the venerated people among religious belief. And All Souls Day was meant to sort of round that out. And of course, the day before All Saints Day is All Hallows Eve the night before, which is where we get the word Halloween that we use. And it's interesting too, because we have some historical records that show that Samhain itself was a three-day celebration. And we sort of have that as well now, the 31st, the 1st, and the 2nd, whether you celebrate that as Dia de Muertos or whether you celebrate it as Halloween or All Saints Day or All Souls Day, it's in keeping with this like unbelievably epic ancient tradition. Well, and the... the what it came to be known today. I mean, there's an evolution and patchwork of a lot of different, it seems like cultures and beliefs and yeah. the, the Romans like Lemuria, Lemuria, right. And Beltane, those were kind of heaped on onto this, what would become Halloween as well. Right. Yeah. We get all of these motifs from like different world religions, different world celebrations. We get the house visit, for example, what we call trick-or-treating, which comes to us that used to happen at Christmas time. 
in a lot of places when mummers would go around town dressed in, you know, different costumes and go begging for drink or for food at different houses and play music or put on little shows for people in return for getting money or treats or something like that. We have the carving of pumpkins. We have the building of altars. That's something that happens traditionally for a lot of different um, cultures and religions. We also in some places have Halloween becoming a sort of bonfire night where what you do is you go out and all the deadfall of the autumnal season, you burn in a big heap and people stay up late and it's a time of sort of license and wildness and behavior that maybe isn't quite so okay during the normal part of the year. You have the freedom to do it a little bit. So we see in that almost a Mardi Gras, like a carnivalesque turn of things. And we see that now in contemporary Halloween where vandalism is certainly not considered okay, but it's a tiny bit more overlooked on Halloween or understood on Halloween than it might at other times. So it's, it becomes this day of license almost. Yeah. And, and I'm speaking of the bonfire, my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, there was also the element of the need fire, the, uh, the, gathering together uh, these sacred um, trees, limbs from trees, adding it to this community fire, and then people taking those embers back to their own hearths to restart the, the, the flames that they had put out to kind of mm-hmm. be a community bonding experience. Um, yeah, we see a lot of that at this time of year. And I think it's one of those things that makes a real sort of innate or intrinsic sense when we think of where we're headed at this time of year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, that we're headed into times where it's cold, we might be isolated, we might not be able to travel, we don't have abundant food growing, we're gonna be relying on stores and storage, and we're gonna be relying on each other. And the darkening of the world really is one of those things that, yes, it's sort of a reality of the nature of, you know, physics and the universe, but human beings have always wanted to help the light return. So in the dark seasons, we have all these festivals of light, whether we're, you know, it, at the, you know, the end of our year, lighting Christmas trees or menorahs or Yule logs or whatever. We see this real emphasis on kindling, on igniting, on lights that recognize the ending of one thing is intrinsically tied to the beginning of the next. Uh, Margie, from your perspective, with these early traditions, uh, Sawen, there would be people would wear masks that, you know, the veil was at its thinnest and people would wear masks to essentially confuse any potential spirits, especially the bad ones, so they could pass pass uh, unnoticed. But of course, there's the element of, you know, literally um, masquerading, obscuring your face. What kind of purpose does that serve from a sociological standpoint, both the acknowledging this thin veil, this this mortality, as well as what kind of license are we given when we are wearing masks? Yeah, I think you you just said it. It's that license to kind of put on a different uh, personality, a, a different, um, you know, even kind of worldview to, to be somebody else for a night and to... Uh, interact with people without all of the assumptions and expectations and all of the preconceived notions that people in your life might have. Now you have an opportunity to just kind of try and start over and and do something different. Um, So I think that that need has has been 
around for a very long time that however it shows up, whether it's wearing masks for spiritual um, rituals or for Halloween, it's that opportunity to really kind of step into a a different person's shoes and be someone different for a while. Um, And it opens our minds, I think, in an important way to just thinking about uh, different points of view in life. So we can really think about different people's perspectives and um, just be more creative, you know, just kind of open, open the doors that may have been shut just by the everyday kind of routine and interactions. What's your perspective on the need for pranking because, or if there is a need for pranking, because we also saw it, I, I think, in um, in England uh, during Guy Fawkes uh, uh, day, there would be sort of this trick-or-treat element, and that took place in November, trick-or-treat element as well as a little bit of pranking. And then when it makes the leap over to the colonies, um, there was different perspectives on Halloween, but eventually we did see these Devil's Night, these Hell Nights, these these prank nights where, where people were really getting out of control for a little bit of time. It seemed like, especially in Detroit. So they say is, does that serve a sociological purpose to have a moment, a night where there is more permissiveness towards uh, some unruly behavior? <laughs> I just, that reminded me of the purge movies. <laughs> it certainly suggests that uh, the purge movies it, is like the sort of... modern example. I, I also, the first time I had ever heard a devil's night and it's since come up professionally in my research, but for, for me, it was the crow, the movie, the crow was the first oh, time I had locked into this notion of devil's night. And that was, I guess, still kind of an issue in Detroit in the, uh, the nineties, but, but sorry, go on. Yeah, so I, I think that what the research that I am pulling from for my ideas around this are um, the fact that if we want something to serve a purpose for for us and we go into it with that expectation. So, for example, you think of the idea of I'm going to go blow off some steam because I want to just get rid of all this built up tension and anger and frustration. And I'm mad at my boss and my parents and all of these different authority figures. And you just want to just kind of let it out. If you go into a devil's night with that intent, then on the other side of it, people probably will report, and studies have shown this with the blowing off steam, that they do feel that then. They feel like they have exercised their own inner demons and um, kind of uh, are, are, you know, they feel better. Um, and it's, it's in terms of, I mean, there's a lot of different research looking at group uh, well, I guess pranking and then taken to the extent, you know, you could have a lot of destruction, but um, it does become kind of a, a also opportunity for people to feel a sense of solidarity. Um, it may be around something that's destructive, but it's still generating that feeling that they're in this together and that um, in that moment they have power, uh, especially over, you know, all of the the social norms that keep us restricted in our behavior. They may feel like, okay, we're in this together. We have enough numbers now that we can do what we want to do. And for lack of other things to do, they might just burn something or throw some pumpkins around. But um, in that they are having a sense of community, um, however destructive it might be. Yeah. Is that, uh, Lynn, is that something that you find across cultures that there is this unified idea of okay we need one night where people are allowed to go a little bit crazy yeah 
Absolutely. And, you know, we often get two nights a year. So that's probably enough, I imagine, for us. But it's interesting, too, to think about where the boundaries of that are, because, you know, as a folklorist, we love to think of cultural expressions in terms of genre. What 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 form of folklore is this? And a prank is really specific. It's not a crime. Right. It it implies sort of a playful badness. I got you, but I'm not here to actually harm you or fully destroy property. And we, we seem to know when that line gets crossed, but leading up to it, it's not, it's not always clear. And anytime we have that, we're sort of operating in this realm of the liminal where things are, you know, betwixt and between, which is just a perfect fit with Halloween, where, as you said, that veil is thin, we're in between, you know, whether that's in between one year and the next, if indeed Samhain was the new year, or whether that's, we're just in between the you know, the season of light and growth and the season of darkness and harvest and, and reaping. And that liminality opens the door to sort of being right on the edge of a whole lot of other stuff as well. So when we see vandalism in the pranks, they happen at the threshold, the literal limin of people's homes, right? You come to the door, you don't march inside and start smashing their furniture. You stand at the door. And if you're going to you know, deface someone's property. It's usually something temporary and something done in that liminal space of the front yard or the front porch, like smashing a pumpkin or toilet papering a tree or egging someone's front door. We don't breach that boundary of the home. That's not a prank. That's a crime. So we keep it at this kind of strangely just off of bad level. And that seems to just lean into the symbolism of what's going on. The, the, it's interesting to me because there is that offshoot of also with the treat and the trick element that part of this was, and you reference this, uh, the mummers, but also this notion of of souling and 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 uh, coming to someone's door and saying, "We'll pray for your lost souls in exchange for the sweet treat." So it's sort of like there's the element of it where it was just this community service. Well, you know, exchange, give me, you know, give me a tree. I'll, t- I'll say a prayer. Uh, but they also the kind of the, the trick element of it as well. They seem like they're kind of existing uh, at the same time simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. It speaks to a real pragmatism within this acknowledgement of community and the social contract is like, I'm not giving my good wishes away for free here. You mm-hmm. know, like I'm going to come to your house. You're not going to be alone, but you're going to owe me something for doing it. Or maybe I'm going to take some things. I think I'm owed something. So we get, yeah. it really is. It's a really symbolically fruitful cultural exchange that goes on. It reminds me of, um, so um, Emil uh, Durkheim, he was a really old sociologist, but he talked about the sacred and profane and that, you know, the pranking and can be seen as a way to find out where that line is. You know, where is that line that says, okay, now you've crossed outside of what's acceptable. And so it, it does remind people like in our society, in this group, that's the line that you can't cross. And by pushing the limits, getting right up to it, um, it can remind us uh, what we all are agreeing to in this social contract. Um, and sometimes that line does need to be kind of highlighted uh, because, you know, we can forget where it is and maybe, you know, uh, step over it a little too often or or start restricting too much. So it is a, a, a way of kind of um, reasserting our social contract. Yeah. We, we reach this point where the 
the Puritans come over to North America and they're in New England and they're, it seems like they're very much divorced of what this nonsense was of what was kind of becoming Halloween. And, but meanwhile in the South and in Virginia, there was still some, some practice of these, of these. And, and then, and then the Irish immigrants come along and they're bringing it hardcore. Um, what are some of the, um, can you speak to any kind of urban legends or things or, or legends and folklore that were kind of emerging in these times with these different pockets of people and then how that added to um, the overall fabric of specifically the United States and our, our practice of this, this time? Len? Yeah. I mean, my area of expertise is more in contemporary legends about this sort of stuff, but when we look back at the past, one of the things that we're seeing is this religious plurality that was existing here. And Halloween for many of us today is a more secular celebration. Very few of us are celebrating Halloween by that name as All Hallows Eve preceding All Saints Day and then All Souls Day. But when we see all of these different religious groups coming together, we start to see sort of you know, two responses to it. One, which is syncretic religions, where we start getting things being put together and we get Santeria, we get voodoo, we get these these new creations that take on pieces of the old things and bring in, you know, the intermingling of cultures from other places. And then we also get a really clear cut line through them. And there's a famous quote from Voltaire where he basically is talking about the nature of superstition and he basically describes it as everyone is superstition is everyone is superstitious of the the group standing right next to them so that you know that protestants would see catholics as especially superstitious catholics would probably see jewish people as especially superstitious and we sort of go down the line where we when we see sort of different beliefs we begin to immediately start that work of othering this so when we have deep religious practice over here and sort of asceticism over here we immediately make that divide as deep as it can be and say all right this is now you know verging on black mass this is approaching mm -hmm. evil in the way that this is being done here so it's we sort of like to see it as this melting pot where everyone came together and merged their beliefs into one. And in a lot of ways, what it really became was really steep accusations of witchcraft. So we get this idea that the um, the Catholic Eucharist was a sign of witchcraft, of cannibalism, um, which is an interesting interpretation when you look at it historically. Um, but we begin to we begin to develop this sense of what evil looks like and it looks a lot like other people's religious beliefs right do you have something to add to that margie no no i right. i think i think Lindy, you covered that covered it I, yeah it's curious to me and i didn't want to necessarily leap this fast ahead but in 2022 we are seeing uh more people having secular spiritual beliefs it seems like a lot of secular, even kind of paranormal beliefs. We're seeing less um, organized people, especially younger generations, signing up for organized religion. And we also see this increase in the quote unquote spooky season. And I'm kind of curious if you see a correlation between all of these things 
happening at once uh, and sort of what that means. Uh, either one of you can start with that. Um, if Margie, if you have some thoughts, uh, fire away. Yeah, I think it is interesting. And uh, I do remember looking at some um, data. For, it was a little bit dated, though, that was showing those trends of increasing belief in ghosts and paranormal while decreased uh, um, uh, religious beliefs. And so I, I think that it can be tied to a few different things. I mean, there is the the influence of what is in popular media. You know, it, it is a um, form of entertainment, you know, as we all know, to to get really into um, ghosts and and the paranormal and to think about things that aren't right in front of us that could be you know just even imagining the could be the the fantasy the um, you know the the questions we have that can't be answered is is a, generates a sense of novelty and, and can be just fun to think about and so I think that there is the the just kind of um, entertainment in it all but I think also it is um, we do want to feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And by believing in the paranormal and ghost, we, we are then imagining that there is something beyond us. There's something beyond our uh, life after we die. There, there is something else. And that sense of belonging to something bigger is associated with um, not being as afraid of death. So in terror management theory research, looking at um, pe different people's worldview. If you have a sense that there is something after, uh, it can lower our, our own fear of dying. And so I think that that doesn't go away just because somebody isn't part of a specific religion. We're always going to be afraid of, of, of our own death or at least imagine what comes after. And so it can be a way of managing that fear to, to focus and um, hold on to the, the paranormal. Yeah, it's interesting to me because it does seem like this this spooky season. I kind of said it at the top. It's people are kind of embracing this as a year round thing now, and uh, you know that that kind of interest. And then I guess the spooky season specifically is sort of like Christmas for a certain group of people, where it really begins early. And and look, even you know <laughs> the spirit Halloween stores seem to pop up earlier every year, and uh, you know the Hallmark stores are kind of replacing uh, their summer stuff with with Halloween stuff very very early on. It it so it I mean that's I I have to think that that says something about us from a folkloric standpoint as well, right, Lynn? Yes, I think I think so. And I think one of the things that we see whenever we look at data of self-reported belief in the paranormal or in ghosts, um, we always have to consider that what we're getting is not what people believe, but what people are willing to admit that they believe. And that's a that's somewhat of a different thing. It, it almost goes back to Margie, your we get to do follow up questions now. Yeah. Deeper ethnographic data is always better for sort of plumbing the depths of supernatural or paranormal belief, because for a large part of, of contemporary society, the question, do you believe in ghosts, has a right answer. And that answer is no, because that is the rationalist answer, the scientific answer, the skeptical answer. And for almost everyone, the answer is actually somewhere more along the lines of no, but... And then there's a personal story. And Margie, I love that you separated like entertainment paranormal from like the experience of the paranormal because 
in entertainment worlds, the paranormal need is expected to be over the top, right? I mean, jump scares and, and gore and, and psychological terror and atmospheric horror and all that stuff. And on like the lived experience level, people's experiences with the supernatural verge on the mundane. So, it, you know, someone's story that follows that no, but might take the form of, you know, my grandfather did visit me the night that he died in my bedroom. I didn't know he had died. I found out the next day. Um, but he was standing in my room and I woke up and he told me everything was going to be okay. And I was felt happy and I fell back asleep. And so someone will tell that story and it's like, what was that? If not the ghost of your grandfather, as it is departing this world. Um, but what they're saying no to is that, that less personal stuff, that bigger stuff. No, of course I don't believe in all of that irrational, whatever, but when it comes to my very specific, hard to explain, deeply coincidental, if not true, you know, experience, yeah, I believe in that. And I think that what the spooky season does is it lets us lean into that without embarrassment, right? It's a whole season about it. Now I get to talk about ghosts. I get to, you know, put little gravestones out in my front yard. And the longer we stretch that out, the longer the doors open for us to talk about the stuff that we love to talk about, but that we're maybe not always supposed to be super leaning into. I, it, I love it because it is this, it, it feels like a paradigm shift, honestly, where there's more weird kids out there, but the weird isn't all that weird anymore. And, yeah. and from the journalistic perspective, I've said this many, many, many times that I, you know, I go to, any, you can go to any bar or any gathering, um, you know, in, in the world. And it seems like, a lot of people might start with, nah, I don't believe in ghosts. Like when it comes up and it eventually will always come up in some sort of bar gathering, whatever. Nah, I don't believe in ghosts. But there was this one time it's like it couches. I even I, I, I recently interviewed a guy who is involved. I've And people that listen to this this show um, frequently have heard me reference this. It's one of the producers for the CBS show Ghosts and <laughs> lovely guy. And he was telling me a story of like, well, I don't really believe in the paranormal stuff. And then he, he launches into this whole tale that was freaking bizarre and fr like so compelling. And he was telling it as someone that was like, yeah. And then I found this other thing out and that was kind of weird. But it was all like from a, a well, but I don't believe in this stuff. And I'm like, dude, it sounds like you actually had an experience and maybe you should allow yourself to believe that a little bit. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, you know, there's a really famous work of scholarship in folklore studies um, that I love sharing with my students because they're all totally affronted um, that that posits that both belief and disbelief are traditional stances because we tend to think of belief as traditional and disbelief as scientific and that's fairly arbitrary most of us are not doing any of these scientific rigor that it would take to prove any of the things that we believe in either true or false. You know, I don't believe in gravity because I have actually completed the equation of gravitational force of you know, the mass of the planet. I believe in gravity because every time I drop something, it falls to the ground. So it's experience that leads to my belief in that very foundational scientific fact. It is also experience that leads anyone into a belief in the supernatural personal lived experience. It's just whether or not that lines up and the personal experience of, of our friends and family and communities as narrated to us. So when friends who we know to be intelligent, sober, rational people say, Hey, you know, I don't believe in ghosts. And that claim as a frame to a story is a grounding in rationality. 
It's saying, I'm not a crazy person telling you the story. I'm someone who doesn't believe in ghosts, but check this out. And it's actually functions as an authenticating factor for the story. Because if you presented it as, I believe in every weird thing that's ever happened and let me tell you this, you're suddenly like, oh, well now I don't believe you, right? So it's this rhetorical technique that people have that actually makes their stories seem more viable. That's so interesting. I thank you so much for sharing that. I love thinking about that because it's something that people do without, it's not like they're yeah. plotting and thinking, okay, I need to make sure that I'm coming off as, you know, legitimate. It's just, it just happens. We just mm -hmm. learn that through socialization that if we want to be believed, we have to offer a little bit of, of that grounding. I love that. Yeah, that uh, that's that's excellent. The, I, I hadn't thought about that as well. So I, I love that. Uh, Margie, we had this moment in the 60s. It was, I think it was more like post Great Depression into the 60s where Halloween really became fun. You know, we had, we reached the point of the Charlie Brown special and it was uh, maybe less about the spooky and more entirely about the fun. Can you still have the benefit? Obviously, you've studied a lot about the, the benefit of fear. And can we still have the benefit of fear if we're leaning in entirely to the fun of the scares do we lose anything no i, I mean it, it all of course depends on context um that's what i start everything with is it depends you know why people are there but ultimately when people are spending time and resources to do something they they are they want to experience something that will be positive even if the route to get to positive is what other people would consider negative. So, you know, engaging with fear, wanting to be scared. Um, it's ultimately still the fun becomes part of why it can be beneficial is because you, you want to gain something from the experience. And what's amazing about our minds and what we can do is even though we are going in with just, we want to have fun. Um, we know nothing is, is real. We're not really scared of anything um we can suspend all of that and just just let it all go and accept the reality that we're shown that is a haunted house or you know a movie we just accept that we're there and um and then just reap all of the rewards of 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 the fun element of it so i don't think that it decreases the benefits i mean i could see you know in our, in our research, we do show that people who felt like they challenged their fears and learned about themselves also reported the experience as more scary and more thrilling. So, you know, our data does suggest that there is a relationship between feeling, you know, that, that it was scary and feeling a, a sense of learning about yourself and then ultimately having improved mood. So I think that, you know, that's a good question. That is, is, it would be really good to kind of tease out where the the tipping point is from going from kind of too fun, too safe to um, the the right kind of fun, scary yeah. combination. Uh, and also the point of diminishing returns, where yeah. if you entering into, I love going to haunted house attractions, um, but I I have a feeling that some of the, and I've done some of the more intense ones as well. And those become less fun for me for many reasons. Or if I watch certain kinds of horror movies, when it starts feeling a little too real or gratuitous or whatever, it's less fun. I feel like I'm not getting the enjoyment part of it so much as like, I've reached a point where 
I don't know, maybe this is just plain scary or uncomfortable or whatever, and I'm not getting the the uh, the payout, the the benefit. Yeah, we want that absurdity in there. I think that yeah. that's that's really important. Is that you know, it doesn't get into the whole generating feelings of shame or um, discomfort. It's really the the absurdity is what can can make the um, typically horrific, you know, body parts flying everywhere. If it's absurd, then it it gives that door to to have some fun with it because you know it's it's not real. Yeah, I really love that because I I'm not I've never done work as I know you have with you know haunted houses and these sort of you know crafted attractions that are really meant to tap into the things that are going to freak us out. Um, as a folklorist, one of the things I look at is legend tripping and legend tripping is like when you all pile into a car when you're, you know, teenagers and you go to the spooky haunted statue in your hometown cemetery and you do whatever ritual you're supposed to do there and wait and see if the statue does whatever it's supposed to do, like cries or moves or changes color or whatever. Um, and it's sort of like this DIY fear, right? You can make it as scary as you want or as not scary as you want. You can prank your friends or not, and you can interpret what does happen in sort of whatever way you want. And so there's this, there's this crafting of experience that each different group of people who goes to these places gets to do. And folklorists have found that different people like legit do different things when they go there. So that there are some people, a really great example, and there, I'm sure they exist in a lot of places. We have one here near Salt Lake City um, but in San Antonio, there's the ghost tracks, a set of train tracks where the story tells that a group of children on a school bus died when a train hit them. Um, and if you go park your car on the train tracks, you will be pushed up the hill. Your car will actually roll forward up the hill. And it's the children saving you from the fate that they suffered. Then these are sometimes just called gravity hill, you know, sites, and they're not tied to a supernatural story at all. Um, but this amazing folklorist named Carl Lindahl went and did fieldwork there and found everything from like totally skeptical groups of teenagers to like almost religious pilgrimage groups where families, especially Hispanic Catholic families, were showing up and almost treating the, the ghosts of the children as, as sainted spirits that you could ask for divine intervention or help or healing from um, by engaging in their story with them. And that whole spectrum of experience everywhere from sort of, you know, the sublime to the terrifying is, is just to know that that's all packed in there is really cool. I, I continue to be just so fascinated by the, I guess, regionalism of, of these legends as well. The, the different rules that you have to follow, you know, is it three, three times or, 13 times you need to say bloody Mary in order to bring her forth and who is bloody Mary in your neighborhood or your country. And depending on what era you're saying it in, I, I love the, the customization of the legends. Mm -hmm. I, I want, I want to talk a little bit about, because it's, it's relevant because of the new movie Halloween ends Halloween ends. Obviously I don't, I mean, spoiler alert. I don't think we've seen the last of Michael Myers, but Halloween ends really began in a time it was it was the initial movie was released in 1978 and that was a couple years after Watergate and there's my dog barking wanting attention um 
Uh, <laughs> it's the wonders of showbiz from home, I guess. Uh, so Watergate takes place in 1974. Halloween is released in 1978. Another kind of very horror in the suburbs movie when a stranger calls you know the babysitter the call is coming from inside the house that's 1979 and then we also have this emerging satanic panic so i guess i'm i'm curious what your thoughts are about what the hell was going on with the suburbs what the hell was going on at that time that radically altered Halloween as a holiday and also instilled us with such paranoia about the safety of the of the of those neighborhoods. Um, Margie, do you want to start with that? I mean, the, it really touches on sort of the the social vibe, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it, um, you know, there was this idea after World War II and the GI Bill when they really started building the suburbs, you know, these these massive developments where. Um, a family could buy a home without having to put too much down and you could get the 30-year mortgage. And um, it opened up this idea that, wow, you can have this perfect life that was really only for um, white Christians. I mean, the um, black population didn't get to take advantage of that GI Bill. And so we're left out of the whole housing growth in the suburbs. But for the marketing, you know, in the campaigns and everything for the, you know, the the new refrigerators and stoves and all of this, this picture perfect kind of lifestyle was painted. And that's what you saw the stereotype in the 50s and 60s. And so when we start getting to the late 70s, there, the cracks are really starting to show in that ideal perfect um, uh, lifestyle that that never really was the case that you know, it, you can make it look prettier in the suburbs, but that doesn't mean that there aren't real problems behind the doors and that the there's crime, there's dangerous people. Those dangerous people might be the people, you know, who are right next to you instead of outside somewhere. So I think that because the suburbs were built up as this safe haven, and that's what they were supposed to be, um, when you start seeing the you know, that that's not true. It really opened the door for a lot of brilliant writers and directors and creative minds to say, hey, let's take this thing, much like we take clowns or, you know, young kids and say, let's take this thing that's supposed to be good and that's supposed to be safe and let's just twist it around and let's show um, what happens when we take that veil off of the perfect idea of the lifestyle and and what what is suburbia. Um, you also see in the 70s that more women are entering the workforce. And so there is more of a bringing in of the outside world into the home. And with it, all of the, the realities of life that maybe people didn't have to confront before, now they have to confront them. And so it's, I think, a, um, a, we, we see it in, in our horror movies. That's what's so amazing and wonderful about horror movies is you see this great reflection of what's actually happening in society. Um, so those are my two cents. <laughs> so that's that also is it a total misread for me to say that as the women were leaving the home and entering the workplace workplace, some of these fears that started emerging was also a bit of a shaming of like, this is what happens when you leave your children behind and you're not Absolutely. home. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I was the latchkey kid, which really was most kids who's who both parents worked that it was a, a shameful kind of label to to have even when I was growing up and um so it definitely was a, a threat to you know don't don't mess ideal perfect kind of home life um yeah. but 
reality is we have to work. <laughs> yeah. And, and Lynn, I want you to talk about the kind of the urban legends and how folklore represented this, this paranoia and end to the perceived safety during this time. I mean, we, and I, I mentioned, uh, there's also, this was right around the time that we start first hearing about, you have to screen your candy. You, there's, there's razor blades in your candy. And, you know, then there was the Tylenol scare, the notion of uh, this thing that was just kind of lighthearted and fun, or maybe spiritual and fun suddenly had a very real world threat to it. Yeah. And this is, this is really where we see a lot of the sort of, you know, symbolic communicative weight of these legends stepping in because babysitter legends, which, you know, you, you referenced the film when a stranger calls the classic urban legend that's behind that story and all the other babysitter stories. The, the one that terrified me when I was young was the, the tagline was humans can lick too." the one. Oh, I remember remember that tormented me oh um, yeah cool. i was i didn't have a dog so i don't know what i thought was going to happen oh, I but, just got chills. but um, I remember that. you know it's it's mm-hmm. interesting because we see the babysitter legends kind of condemnation of men on fronts because it's a condemnation of mothers for leaving and look you have to outsource the care of your children to incompetent teenage girls and then a condemnation of the teenage girls for being incompetent it's like you can't win. But then teenage girls sort of adopt those legends and tell them among themselves as this way of saying, man, being an adult woman sounds terrifying. Like, right. you know, being responsible for children, being at the mercy of, of all the people out there to who are there to harm us. And that's really, I think, one of the consistencies that we see in these legends is, you know, anytime we want to be or we want to, not that we ever want to be, but anytime it suits our our sociological needs to really dwell in fear threats to children is just one of the best ways that we can achieve that and so you know halloween becoming a children's holiday it was it was not that when it was you know Samhain or all saints day or all souls day or dia de muertos it's it, it was all ages and halloween now is very child oriented and so the threats of halloween are the threats to children so we get these legends of razor blades in apples and contaminated Halloween candy, candy that has poison in it, all of these these different things, almost across the board, none of them have happened. And when they have happened, they're often instances of what folklorists would call ostention, which is basically the story came first and now I'm acting it out and I'm acting it out in a way to make the story scapegoat my behavior. So the instances of contaminated or or you know tampered with candy that have been found to be true were parents harming their own children. So the people who act in the role of the protector in the legends, you know, getting their kids candy screened at the airport x-ray machines, um, that's who's actually gonna hurt kids, most likely is their own family members. Um, and it's so interesting to, to see these patterns, this, you know, the idea of the trick element of Halloween and how quickly that can turn nasty and, and become evil. We see these fears of external threats penetrating our safe, secure places like the suburbs. It's supposed to be this, you know, this utopia of, of quiet and safety. And the scary things are supposed to be on the edges. I mean, and that's what we see so often, going back to that idea of liminality. The haunted house is never right in the middle of town. It's on the edge of town, 
right before town becomes barren wasteland of train tracks and untended fields. And what horror really does well is it takes that danger and puts it right in our safest spaces, in our homes, in the food we eat, in the food that we give to our children, that other people give to our children. That fear of of contamination and invasion is just so evident in all of those stories. Just sticking with this for another moment, the idea of Michael Myers in Halloween, why is he from both a folklore standpoint and a sociological standpoint, such a terrifying and effective monster? him as the actual character, Margie? I think because he he is both faceless, but we're also seeing a lot of that through his his mask. You know, there's there's a lot of, of point of view. Where, yeah. And I think that that's really interesting because it does, you know, cause us to question what does it take to become this monster, you know, and what has happened to this person could could this person be any person you know so you don't really have a clear idea of who your enemy is or who this monster is um and so it can kind of take on your worst fears um from there um and the fact that he is so can be so invisible you know and, and that's the the real fear in the suburbs are the threats that are right there but you can't see them and so you know he kind of can be invisible but be this specter kind of hanging over everyone's head as they, you know, go down the street and take a jog or just walk to their friend's house that he could be right there and you just can't see him. So I think that that's, that's all involved in it. Um, yeah, it is the fact that he could be your neighbor, he could be anyone. And so yeah. then if it can be anyone, then no one is truly safe. Exactly. Um, it, it, it almost speaks against like the xenophobic tendency of the terror comes from somewhere else into my space. It's no, it, yeah. it starts here. It's a neighbor. It's someone who grew up here coming back home to wreak havoc on things, right? right? To, to cause this. And I think the mask is actually a really astute thing to turn to because we see that same facelessness in like Slenderman. Now right. it's this anybody sort of idea that it's not just the face of one scary person. It's it's this could be anybody. Yeah, yeah. So we are now seeing more representation of other cultures and other legends and folklore, and they're becoming more mainstream. And I think that that is a good thing, but how is that impacting what we kind of find scary during this season? Or is it, is it at all? You know, I think of it very much like uh, a, well, from an imaginative point of view, you know, how many how many different monsters can we come up with and how can we create them in ways that will be even more surprising or startling or, or novel or different? And so the, the more input we have into that creative process, the better. Yeah. And I think that when we when we look at, you know, global cultures to find what can be scary, what's going on here, one of the big risks that we face with access to so much information is that we we run the risk of decontextualizing beliefs from their parent cultures. So that we take a cool idea that seems spooky to us and we say, oh, that must be like this, it must work this way. And we sort of pull it out and make it our own, which is great, 
but it's not the same thing as coming to a full understanding of that belief in context. And we, we can end up potentially demeaning um, or, or trivializing someone else's culture when we do that. So there's sort of two sides to it. As a folklorist, yeah. I think it's fantastic that people now can go online and say, you know, I think I saw this spooky thing while I was out at night and be like, whoa, maybe it's this thing from the Philippines that I never heard of before, which is awesome. But we also want to make sure that that home culture is the one explaining that belief and that phenomenon yeah. to us if we're going to go out and sort of make something of it. And, right. and that really is just, I think about, you know, like ethical cross-cultural interaction. If I, I mean, when I want to learn more about stuff, I go online, I Google it, I read blogs, I read what other people's experiences are. And the closer I can get sort of culturally to the source of that stuff, the better, you know, pop ethnography I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I, everything I said, I would say that is the first place to start is making sure that, you know, it's not misappropriating something and that it's, it's done with consideration and involvement of wherever something is coming from. Definitely. Is there any, I realize that it takes a while for legends and, and social science to really gel, but is there anything that you're noticing in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is ongoing, um, but how that's impacting what scares us and then more relative to Halloween, you know, obviously a season where people go to strangers' homes and interact, noticing any kind of change or evolution in how we think of what scares us and Halloween, Margie? I, I have this question too, and um, I've been including it in <laughs> survey collection this year to find out how, how it's changing. I have a, uh, well, I have a, re I have a question of if it has kind of diminished our, our uh, desire for the real intensity. I think that from just anecdotal observations and conversations, people are looking for a little bit more of, of the the softer um, scares, I could be totally wrong. That's just my initial kind of observations and in discussions. But mm. um, I think that the whole fear of other people, you know, has been so real now for so long that we're going to see a lot of changes. And so I, I don't have any answers. I just have a lot of questions too. Yeah, I, I can see something similar happening. I think that a lot of our scary stuff for a long time has tied in with the idea of contagion that and whether that's touching a cursed object is what gets you being followed by a, you know, a spirit or a presence or whether that's um, the literal contagion of being bitten by a zombie or a vampire or whether it's something in film like from It Follows, where it's literally like a supernatural haunt is a sexually transmitted disease. That was, that was a really good one, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this sort of like the epidemiology of the supernatural is something that mirrors our understanding of how things, invisible things that drastically affect our well-beings, if not our mortality, come to us. This is a model we use all the time. And it's one that we've all had cause to experience in a way, way more significant, you know, 
type of experience. That was a terrible sentence. One thing that I did hear recently, the annual meeting of the American Folklore Society was last week, and someone was telling me that um, apparently the number of haunted house reports has gone way up after people spent so much time in their homes that they had, they finally had the chance to notice that it was haunted, which I love. I love thinking of all these people with haunted houses spending 90% of their time out of the house, at work, doing something else, finally being at home only to discover, whoa, I've got a ghost here. I think that maybe is going to be a, a good side benefit for the supernatural. It's definitely already impacted horror and influenced a lot of the horror that we see coming yeah. now been two years where the creatives have been writing enough things and been able to produce direct these films that it's you're feeling this or noticing this in the genre. I want to leave you with uh, you promoting your work, but additionally, any final thoughts that I wasn't able to get to and that you just have about this, uh, this time of year, Len. Yeah. Um, I, I think my final thoughts really are lean into it you know, take this opportunity to appreciate all of the spooky stuff. I think that there's, it's one of those arenas of life as so much folklore is that gets trivialized easily and it doesn't need to be. And so that process we all go through that sort of social negotiation of I'm going to prove my rationality to you before I say that, you know, this spooky thing, this is the time of year. We don't even need to do it. We just get to talk about the spooky stuff. So I feel like that is a good thing. Um, I did just want to share with any folks who care, two books, Legend Tripping. This is my haunted statue depicted here, the weeping woman in these. Uh, we have a cemetery campus, um, a cemetery on campus um, here at Utah State University. And this is our haunted statue. And this book um, is a collection of some of the big hitters of legend tripping scholarship since the term was coined in the 1960s, I believe. Um, and then also, you know, the internet moves at the speed of something faster than light. Um, and so it's already outdated, but this other book, Slender Man is coming, um, is a bunch of folklorists, different thoughts on what this phenomenon was kind of in the you know, the mid 2000s or the mid 2010s when it really kicked into gear um, and tying it into a lot of other folkloric stuff. Most of the stuff we encounter has precedence. Moral panics have happened before. Ghost stories, urban legends happened before and seeing the ways that they've happened before and the ways that that informs what's happening now. Well, obviously I think it's cool. I'm a folklorist, but it's also really cool even if you're not a folklorist. So something yeah. worth considering. But and also I, at some point I need to make it to one of these folklorist meetings. I hear you guys just really throw down that it's a fun gathering. Yeah, guys, that's, that's true. That is true. Yes. Okay. I can't wait to check that out. I didn't. Point. I didn't sleep a lot. You know. <laughs> the, the party I need to make it make it to and um, and send me those books, Len and uh, Margie. Yeah, uh, I agree. Get out there this year and do something that scares you that uh, is just enough scare to make you feel uh, like you're alive and like you're still learning about yourself and still surprising yourself. Um, so d if you don't like haunted houses, it doesn't have to be that. It can be anything that just gets you to a, a safety boundary and then push a little bit further. Um, in terms of books, uh, you know, definitely there's my, my book, Scream, Chilling Adventures of the Science of Fear. I also have a chapter, I put this far too, too far away for me to grab here, um, a, a chapter in this book, which is called uh, Children, Young People, and Dark Tourism. Um, so it's more on the academic kind of side, but it's uh, all about how kids engage with 
uh, scary material and what they uh, get out of it, why they why they go, and um, how how they engage with some really heavy stuff. So uh, check that out. I am literally buying it now. That is <laughs> <laughs> very good. And uh, Lynn, Margie, anytime that you guys want to have a chat about anything, about any topical uh, anything, just, you let me know. Awesome. And that was Dr. Margie Kerr and Dr. Lynn S. McNeil talking about Halloween and the origins and evolution in this episode of Talking Strange Rewind. And I am your host of Talking Strange and Talking Strange Rewind, Aaron Sagers. And until next time, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon for more paranormal pop culture content. Yeah.